0: sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
1: To suggest that people who understand the seriousness of this and are protesting the lack of transparency, the lack of due process, to suggest that they're hysterical is really to try and, I think, throw out a red herring and not deal with the real issue.
0: Senator, if confirmed to the Supreme Court and as a sitting judge, I owe my loyalty to the Constitution. The Constitution establishes me as an independent judge, bound to follow the law as written, the precedents of the Supreme Court. Then I would do so. And now, Stacy Washington.
2: Indeed, it is. Welcome to the program. It's great to be with you today. Uh, it's Wednesday, otherwise known as Hump Day, and we're getting through this week. We're actually moving through it pretty quickly with the holiday on Monday. And I have to say, I, uh, oh, oh, it's been fascinating times. Uh, there have been a number of news items, breaking news, et cetera, et cetera. I got the plane coming into the United States with 500 passengers out of, uh, Dubai, a United Emirates plane that was detained for well over an hour because 19 passengers were sick. Um, sick with flu like symptoms that can are now being traced back to. Visitors to Mecca. So Mecca is experiencing a flu outbreak and individuals who were at Mecca. They were visiting that place traveled to Dubai to catch a flight into the United States and became ill on the tail end of the journey. And so the entire plane had to be quarantined and the CDC was called in and apparently they're attributing the, uh, the symptoms to the flu. So welcome to Stacy on the Ride here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk, afr.net, urbanfamilytalk.com. That's where you can find out more. Uh, the program today, well, we have two wonderful guests. I love when we have a, a good slate of guests to go along with our content, and today is no different in that aspect. We have Dr. Robert Jeffress who's going to come on and talk about his new book, Choosing the Extraordinary Life. That's in hour one. In hour two, we're going to be speaking to Darren Baxt. He is from the Heritage Foundation. In fact, he has a lengthy title. He's a senior research fellow in agricultural policy, Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies, Heritage Foundation. He's going to come on and talk to us about the new Farm Bill. Three reforms that conservatives should fight for in the Farm Bill. Now, this is super important to us because the Farm Bill is a huge appropriations piece in our budget as a, as a nation. And the things that go in there, often it's pork, it's special interest money. And Americans, when we pay attention to this type of stuff um, and we, we make constituent phone calls, we can move the needle on these. And it's obviously just a portion of what we spend. But what's interesting about it is that we we tend to say, oh, that's too little, that's too small, fry, we don't need to pay attention to that. But money stacks up. How do you save a million dollars? A penny at a time, a dollar at a time, a hundred dollars at a time, a thousand dollars at a time. How do you save that much money or shave it off of a budget? Well, one less cup of coffee here, one less huge pork spending project, you know, rider or addendum on a bill there. If we were cutting everywhere, we would see huge savings. It's not about the amount being too small to bother with. It's about whether or not it's a good use of our money or a waste of our money. So we'll be talking to him about that in an hour, too. Of course, right now, as was yesterday, one of the biggest stories of the day is the Kavanaugh hearings. And so it's, uh, I, so first of all, I'm just glad we got to hear. His voice today, after listening to the senators on the committee drone on and on and on yesterday, really an incessant droning, the loving of the sound of their own voices for many of them, and the sound of the deranged harpies, you know, piping into the room and screaming at the top of their lungs. It was interesting, but not that great. Today has been the real main event with Justice Kavanaugh answering questions, sometimes just basically sitting there and being peppered with questions that he wasn't allowed to ask because he was repeated in, you know, repeatedly interrupted by uh, the, the questioner. But be that as it may, he's made some wonderful points. And Senator Mike Lee uh, has just, I think, concluded his questioning of the senator. And there have been a ton of different, really great things that he shared, shared about the Federalist Papers, which of the Federalist Papers were his favorites. Um, he talked about the limitations on the executive um, I mean, it was just some really great uh, content today from, from Justice Kavanaugh. That being said, I thought there were some interesting moments from yesterday that bear introspection, if you will, uh, because, well, there's a huge double standard. Now, notice that people on the right, when they protest, it's the Tea Party. So it's a bunch of grandmas, grandkids, flags, water bottles and a park or venue that is cleaner when the the protest is over than it was when it began now occupy wall street well that was rapes and tents and um you know bodily fluids out it was just a horror it was literally like a third world country had been imported and plopped uh on wall street and from there we've seen the continued degradation of what is considered to be a protest And so this was no different. This is a bunch of people screaming at the top of their lungs and really interrupting things. And when Kamala Harris was asked about it by a host on MSNBC, she basically said you can't call women protesting hysterical while MSNBC played audio of these hysterical people in the background, which completely belied her point. It's number one.
1: People are going to pretend that Americans have no historical memory, and supposedly there haven't been screaming protesters saying women are going to die at every hearing for decades. So, the fact that the hysteria has nothing to do with you means that we should ask, what's the hysteria coming from? The hysteria around Supreme Court confirmation hearings is coming from the fact that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the Supreme Court in American life. Now,
3: think people are being s- hysterical, Senator.
1: Well. <laughs> I think we've got a couple of issues, Chris, with that. Um, one, I think it's a mistake to refer to women who are um, using their voice to protest, a, a flawed process, um, to refer to them as hysterical. There's a whole line of, um, of, of, of discussion and, and, and writings on, on how the word hysteria has been used to talk about women who own their power. So putting that piece aside, I'll say that this was a hearing that we held today where we were given 15 hours to review 42,000 pages of documents. It's a hearing where there are 100,000 pages of documents that no other president has done this, but this president has applied executive privilege to deny us the ability to have access to those documents. And this is a, a nominee who has a long history of being a political operative, a long history of working for various conservative Republican administrations to frankly do a lot of dirty work that has been politically motivated. This committee has a right to fully vet this nominee. The American public has a right to know who he is. And there is so much on the line and so much at stake. Um, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so we, we, okay, What
2: where to begin with that? First of all, the voice you heard at the very beginning of the clip was, was uh, Ben Sass. Ben Sass had an amazing moment in the hearing uh, yesterday when he completely broke down and explained, and we listened to a little bit of that audio yesterday on the show, how because Congress has abdicated their power to legislate and create law, instead of people protesting congressional elections and really protesting Congress and expecting Congress to do things when they're in session – what Americans now do is they protest the Supreme Court and they see the Supreme Court as being the ultimate arbiter when they're only supposed to judge cases on their constitutionality. The lawmaking is supposed to happen in Congress. So he talked about that. And then you have Kamala Harris being confronted with you know this idea that, first of all, Ben Sass said there were hysterics. There were. Um, and she said uh, she's got a big problem with women being called hysterical when they're using their voice to protest. Now, if it was just women using their voices to protest, that'd be one thing. But the protests are going on outside of the hearing room, not in the hearing room. And at one point, there were protesters actually threatening and protesting the nominee's family. So his wife and daughters were protested. And it was mentioned by senators on the committee that This was going on. And instead of protesters taking a step back and saying, wait a minute, we can't threaten his family. I mean, this is this there has to be a line of separation there. We don't agree with his politics, but we can't let this bring us down to a place where we're actually protesting minors, children, little girls. But that doesn't seem to be an issue. Now, I've tweeted out a picture of what looks like one of the protesters who were removed yesterday from the hearing room being paid out of a yellow envelope by a man under a tree outside the Supreme Court of the United States after the conclusion of yesterday's hearings. So if these are paid protesters and they really don't have any legitimate reason to be there, it underscores the absolute rabid nature of the opposition to Kavanaugh not being rooted in something that he's said or done or a a position that he's taken or an administration he worked for. Or an ideology that he espouses, or cases that he's decided for or against opinions that he's written, that's not what this is about. This is about first of all, the god of abortion, the need to bow down to uh, promiscuity and the use of abortion as contraception and, and and to the complete obliteration of any other type of thought there There can be no other viewpoint. You either are for infanticide, or you deserve to be screamed at and have your children threatened. Those are the two options on the left-hand side of the aisle right now when it pertains to the issue of whether or not a human baby inside of a woman's womb should be killed for convenience or not. So you have this, I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that they they just kept coming. They were like, um, you know, a swarm of locusts or an enraged hive of bees where they just keep coming. If you swat some off, they just keep coming and they just keep stinging and stinging and stinging. That was what it was like. And that continued on into today's hearings. And I mean, it, it's it's kind of stunning because it wasn't just women today. Today, they had men screaming at the top of their lungs. I think it's also instructive that the narrative that's being carried forward by the Democrats, that there's some hidden documents or something that hasn't been shared, even in the face of Ted Cruz obliterating that uh, entire line of of attack during his opening remarks yesterday and the subsequent carrying of those remarks all over the place. A lot of people have, have listened to that and said, wow, okay, so this isn't about documents that are being withheld. There are no documents that are being withheld. It's information that has to do with presidential privilege that presidential administrations have refused to make available just because Kavanaugh was working there, they still don't want that classified information out in the public realm, and they have the right to exert that privilege to keep the information out of the public realm. That has nothing to do with Kavanaugh's nomination or subsequent confirmation. In fact, senators who've already stated on television back In July, when Kavanaugh was named as the the choice by the president of the United States, and they immediately announced that they would never vote for him because he came from the Heritage and and, uh, Federalist Society list. So what new documents would help change their minds? None. None at all. So then you have Senator Orrin Hatch, who felt rightly so, because he was interrupted numerous times during his opening statement, that the Democrats are grandstanding looking for television clips. It's number two. Those
4: who know Judge Kavanaugh hold him in highest regard. This is true of both Republicans and Democrats. Unfortunately, we have all these interest groups screaming from the sidelines and putting pressure on my Democratic colleagues to make this hearing about politics, to make it about pretty much anything except Judge Kavanaugh and his qualifications. We have folks who want to run for president who want their moment in the spotlight, who want that coveted TV clip. Frankly, I wish we could drop all the uh, the, uh, nonsense. Judge Kavanaugh is unquestionably qualified. He's one of the most widely respected judges in the country. He's well within the judicial mainstream. Anyone who wants to argue otherwise wants to banish half the country from the mainstream.
2: And isn't that what this really sounds like? If you look at this, if you look at um, the the Nike ad, which by the way, I don't they've lost 3.8 billion dollars in valuation over this decision to have Kaepernick as their their face. It's as if one half of the country is saying the other half of the country doesn't hold valid ideas, even though that half of the country won the election. It's crazy pants, yeah, I know. So when we get back, We're gonna have our next guest and more Stacy on the right, so stay there.
4: Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, President of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, the very first day in Israel, when we're staying in Jerusalem, we go to the Mount of Olives, and it's there at the Mount of Olives we look out over the old city. Of Jerusalem. It's a spectacular sight. You've seen it in pictures before, but it's another thing to actually be there as we walk down from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane and we pray there. It's going to be a wonderful time with brothers and sisters from around the country visiting the Holy Land, the land of Jesus. If you want information on this March 14th to the 22nd tour, just call us and we'll send you a brochure. Call 1 800 families, F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option 5, and leave us your name and your address and we'll mail you a brochure. Or if you want to simply go online at TWHolyLand.com, everything's there. TWHolyLand.com.
0: Hi, I'm Crawford Luritz with a Legacy Moment. I once had a conversation with a young man who was hurt and deeply disappointed by a man who had meant so very much to him. In fact, this man had discipled him and served as a father figure. It was discovered that this man was not all he claimed to be. He was deceptive and manipulative. He was a hypocrite who lived another hidden sinful life. And as this young man shared the details of his experience, I must admit I wonder if the older man really is a believer. It's sad but true. Not everyone who professes to know God has godly intentions. Now, we shouldn't blindly assume everyone is untrustworthy, but we should be cautious. Listen to Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. As you look at these verses, there's some great advice we can extract as it applies to entering into a mentoring or discipleship relationship with someone else. Number one, listen closely to what a person says. Number two, watch closely how a person interacts with others, not just how they interact with you. Then thirdly, pay attention to how they live, how they carry themselves, how they relate to the opposite sex, how they handle money. Look for areas of consistency between what they say and how they really live. I'm not telling us not to trust, but I am saying to make sure the character measures up to the conversation. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Trust is a precious gift. Be careful whom you give it to. You don't want to be abused. Join Crawford Lawrence tomorrow for another Legacy Moment. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
2: Oh, yeah. Welcome back to the show. At Stacy on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. Hit the follow button. And thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Robert Jeffress, who is uh, the author of this new book, Choosing the Extraordinary Life. Dr. Jeffers, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for
5: having me, Stacy.
2: It's good to talk to you. So first off, I love to ask this question of authors. Why did you write this book? Well,
5: last year, Stacy, I wrote a book called A Place Called Heaven, and it's been very well received, been on the bestseller list for the last 11 months. But that book was talking about what God has planned for us after death. But the good news is you don't have to wait until you die in order to experience an extraordinary life. And I thought this book ought to talk about how to experience the life God wants you to experience right now. You know, I think about that Chicago sewer worker who was once asked why he did what he did. And he said, well, I dig the ditch to earn the money, to buy the bread, to get the strength to dig the ditch. And you know, unfortunately, that's how a lot of Christians live. They just get up, go to work, come home, eat supper, watch TV, go to bed, and repeat that cycle over and over again. God wants more for us than that. And that's why I wrote uh, Choosing the Extraordinary Life. The subtitle is God's Seven Secrets for Success and Significance. And it's all based on the life of of Elijah. You know, the Bible says Elijah was a an ordinary person, but God used him in an extraordinary way. And this book is for the mom who feels like she's stuck at home in the routine with toddlers and taking care of her home or uh, the person who's at a job that seems monotonous and pointless. God has something for you beyond what you can see right now.
2: Okay, so here's what's super exciting about this. First of all, I, I was aware of your, your book from last year, bestseller. I saw you on television promoting that, and I thought to myself, you know, it'd be great to talk to him, and now here I am a year later. You're actually on my show. I can't believe this is actually happening, so let's get beyond that fandom and move into... <laughs>
5: oh, no, let's stay for a while, no, Stacey. Well,
2: I, we could. We, you'll have to come back, because I, I have, to. like, all these questions I want to ask you about your personal life, but we're here to talk about the book today, so let's let's get rid of that first. Let's, let's first get to that, and... I think what's so important here is, so in one of the blurbs for the book, it says, leading to success, significance, and satisfaction. Yeah. And I can tell you from when I was a stay-at-home mom full-time, I would often feel like, you know, you're doing the same thing every day. You're taking care of kids. You're cleaning up the house, the same parts of the house repetitively. And then you're cooking, and then you're ending the day, and you're starting over again. And it can feel as if that is not significant, but it is a very high calling being able to stay home with kids and then to choose to raise them and to do so in the way that God calls us to do in the Bible. And that really leads to the success, significance, and satisfaction for your children and for your family if that's done right. Can you talk about that a little bit?
5: Well, right. I mean, there are seasons of life, and I think that's an important word to remember, seasons. I mean, it's more than a day, but it's not a lifetime. And look at Elijah. He had seasons in which he was on public display. He had a very public ministry. You know, three and a half years of his life, God told him to go ahead and hide. And uh, he lived alone for six months by the brook Kareth. He spent another two and a half years with a a widow and Zarephath, but he thought God was finished with him, uh, but he wasn't. And one of the secrets I talk about is waiting on God's timing. And I say that waiting time doesn't have to be wasted time. When we feel like we're waiting for that next big thing, God is often doing a work in us that has to be done before he can use us in a powerful and significant way.
2: And so I, i I want to continue to draw the parallel because during that time, if you'd ever said, Oh, you're going to do a radio show, (laughs) you know, Christian radio, and you're going to talk politics every day. I would have been like, are you out of your mind? Mm -hmm. Look at, look at, look around. I'm covered with children and their Legos and I'm driving them places. That's all I can do. But there's been a distinct pathway that God, kind of led me through at some, at some points I actually thought I was in charge, but honestly looking back, I can see how he was like, now you can do this. And so I was like, sure, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. God can move you from, the place where you're not really sure what's going on, but the the main thing that has to be done is you have to be working as unto the Lord with excellence. It, do, you, do you talk about that at all in the book?
5: Well, I do. And, you know, talking about your own experience. I mean, the fact is had you never gone into radio, you certainly would have been living a significant life. You know, the last secret I talk about the, in the book is uh, significant people live with the end in mind. They think about their legacy, their spiritual legacy, and building into your children is certainly Leaving, uh, living a spiritual legacy. But here's the point, uh, Stacy. For some women, God's purpose is for them to exclusively stay at home. For yeah. other people, God has a different plan. Uh, there are no cookie-cutter plans uh, for God's children. And w- the foundational secret for living an extraordinary life is discovering your unique purpose, which is what I talk about in chapter one. You know, somebody said the two greatest days in your life are the day you were born and and then the day you discovered why you were born. And, you know, God has put a passion in your heart for broadcasting and uh, for politics. God places different passions in our lives. Look, we all know we're here to glorify God. That's the overall purpose. But God has a unique story he's writing in our life to tell his story. And in fact, in the first chapter of Choosing the Extraordinary Life, I use that word story, Stacy, as an acrostic, S-T-O-R-Y to talk about the five ways you can discover the unique purpose for which you were created.
2: Okay, so that's kind of exciting. I encourage people to get the book. I've actually put the link to Amazon where you can purchase the hardcover, all the different versions um, into the live stream so you guys can click that and go straight over and purchase the book. I think, I can think I'm... I'm just interested in your take on because it's it's not just women who feel this way sometimes oh, people yeah. feel this way when they're working maybe maybe they work retail or maybe they are in an office somewhere and they're like how does this glorify God how how do you answer that question for them when when you just feel like your work is just kind of drudgery but god can use all of us exactly where we are that's what we're meant to do
5: well that's right and you know there was um a book came out 20 or 30 years ago i can't believe that now called your work matters to god and uh the whole point was we've had such a uh, skewed idea of work in christianity we think the only work that matters is being a pastor or a missionary or a secular job only matters to the extent that you get to use it as a platform to witness? Well, no. Everything we do, Colossians 3, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. I mean, you know, is it, uh, I know this is a mundane example, but is it God's will to provide for the physical needs of his children? Of course it is. Well, how does he do that? How does he provide food for us day in and day out? Think about all the people from farmers to truckers to store people who are involved in that chain of getting the food from God to you. I mean, everything we do matters to god
2: it matters and i think um some of the stories that i've read and uh, so in, in other books invariably someone will talk about some uh, an individual who started off working at a job that they consider to be maybe kind of drudgery and then over time the creativity that they unleashed in that position enabled them to create a product or to come up with an idea and sometimes it's something really small But in the end, you know, decades or a couple hundred years later, all of us are using that product or that tiny little thing to make our lives easier so that we can earn money to care for ourselves and our families, et cetera, et cetera. And so every job is of great significance, whether it's, you know, people who are in janitor work or food service or preparation. We need all of these people in order to have a functioning society.
5: We do. And, and think about the Apostle Paul. I mean, for much of his life, I just got back from Corinth. And most of his life uh, as a Christian was spent in a secular vocation, making tents. Uh, but what we know him for is what he did in his off hours, so to speak, and that is sharing the gospel. I talk about in my first chapter the story of Edward Kimball. Most people don't know the name Edward Kimball. He was a carpet salesman in Boston. But on Sundays, he taught a Sunday school class. There's a boy in his class who wasn't saved. He was troubled about him. And so he went to visit this uh, 17-year-old boy at his workplace. He worked in a shoe store. He went back to the stockroom with him during a break and led him to faith in Christ. That 17-year-old boy's name was Dwight Lyman Moody, the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. And I trace the story of D.L. Moody and the line that goes from him all the way down to the greatest evangelist of our lifetime, Billy Graham, and show how he, through generations, impacted Billy Graham. And then I go on and trace my own story about how my mom was saved at a Billy Graham crusade in 1954. She then joined my church, First Baptist Church Dallas, where I now serve as pastor because Billy Graham joined the church that day. And in many ways, Stacey, I'm a Christian today. I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas because of a carpet salesman back in Boston named Edward Kimball. So you never know what impact your life is truly going to have.
2: I find that to be absolutely extraordinary. So that (laughs) is, (laughs) well, and I I really, I encourage it. So if you're in the listening audience and you're thinking, wait a minute, so how about you do that kind of trail backwards to find out where your salvation began? Like just just kind of follow it back and see where it started. Um, I know I, I know one of those paths for my parents comes directly through my grandparents, where they literally said, "We are going to attend church faithfully and make sure to raise our children to be Christians." And now I'm th- that the grandkids of those people who learned that from their parents and. Um, my kids are are Christians, too, because of that, not because of, you know, it, it's not an extraordinary story, if you will, but it kind of is when you look at how many people fall away from Christianity and what a legacy it is to actually the, the job that God gives us as parents is to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is the primary thing, not to get them fantastic educations, which is great, yes. not to make them wealthy or, you know, teach them how to drive fancy cars, which is great. It's really that they would grow up to be Christians and arrows for the Lord. And so I'm I'm fascinated to hear your story, but I bet you there are so many millions more of people who have a, a fascinating kind of impetus where one person cared enough about another person to lead them to Christ. And then there's this legacy that goes on um, that, that you can't really follow all of it because there have to be more people who have the same kind of coming from that line of people just like you.
5: And and most of these people, most of us are ordinary people. We're not spiritual super people. Elijah wasn't. He had doubts. He uh, disobeyed God from time to time. He got discouraged, and yet he allowed himself to be used in an extraordinary way.
2: I'm excited about this. So um, I want to hear a little bit more about the book. We have have a few minutes left. Is there anything If you had to tell someone one thing about the book that you would want them to know, or one fascinating anecdote from the book, what would it be?
5: Well, I would tell people, you know, the first chapter, how to discover your unique purpose. Maybe we've got some listeners right now. You have a teenager living at home or a young adult child, and they're wondering, you know, what is my purpose in life? What am I supposed to be doing? Just that acrostic, S-T-O-R-Y, will help them outline what God wants them to do uniquely with their lives. But I think also the chapter on unlearning, Unleashing the power of prayer is so important. It was to Elijah's life. I mean, when James said the effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much, he uses Elijah as an example. I mean, by prayer, Elijah raised a, the widow's son from the dead. He brought the fire of God down from heaven. And I say in this chapter, Stacy, if you want to see God do big things in your life, pray for God to do big things in your life my daughter uh, had three miscarriages over the last several years but she and her husband decided they were going to pray for something big they were going to pray for triplets one life for each life that was lost and God answered their prayer with triplets this last December I mean I've never heard anybody praying with that specificity but they did and it was amazing to see what God did
2: I love stories like that. There's, there's there's so much that we don't get because we don't ask and it's in God's will. God gives us the desires of our heart and we don't get those things because we just, we just think, well, he'd never do that for me. Or, well, that's just you know not something that I should bother him with. We should bother him with all of our concerns, whether it's finding a park at the grocery store to you know having triplets. I'm gonna start praying for triplet grandkids because when my <laughs> kids are done growing up and they get married. I'd love to have triplets as grandkids. Well, we that's had them over for Labor
5: Day after a couple of hours. It's exhausting, but it's uh, satisfying.
2: I'm <laughs> oh, sure it is. You, that's the grandkid joy. Is that you right. get to have them for some hours and then give them back? That's your reward. That's that's, exactly that's right. it right there. I I I love that. I, I hope people who are listening will kind of catch the fire that Dr. Jeffers has for teaching us, not just that every job is significant, but that God answers prayer and that he cares deeply for our wants and desires and wants us to not only live for him, but to rely on him to answer our prayers. Um, I put the book in there. And is there a website that you'd like to give out for people to go to? You know, the
5: easiest way to get the book is through your link. Go to Amazon. It's available in all Christian and secular bookstores right now. Just came out yesterday, Choosing the Extraordinary Life.
2: Well, I'll be going over to get my copy. And then (laughs) what I like to do with books like this is I'll say, sometimes I leave it around and see if one of the kids will pick it up and read it on their own. And then if no one takes the bait, then I'll say, let's have a family book study. And then I hear a little bit of groaning, but no one ever complains at the end. After they've read the book, they're always like, oh, that was so good. So I'll I'll see which of those methods works. But I love the acrostic. I can't wait to find out what story stands for in the first chapter and see how that could apply to these teens that are growing up at our house.
5: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Stacey.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope to speak to you again soon, sir. I
5: I do too. Thanks.
2: All right. Um, And you can find that link. I tweeted it out. I also put it into the live streams online. And I really think, um, you know, I love hearing why people write a book. That's one of my favorite questions to ask is why did you write that book? And then I love hearing like the passion that you could hear from Dr. Jeffers this there about um, he created an acrostic in chapter one. And he leads you through in this book, there's an opportunity that we all have. And I think the viewpoint is the the it's it's where the the rubber meets the road. If we think that our job's are insignificant. If we think you know staying home with the kids is um, just not that great of a job. I, I encourage people who are staying home with kids. I encourage you first to think of women who can't have kids. Um, and, or maybe women who have children but they have to work because financially they, they can't seem to manage staying home on one income. Think of them. but also to think of the, the true and, and utter blessing it is to have children at all. Um, And especially to have them here in America where we have so many options. We're so blessed. And I just, I remember there being many times where I'd be cleaning up and thinking, ah, you know, but then someone would say, oh, I wish I could stay home. And I would remember how blessed I was. So that's just one area. We're blessed to have work at all. Work is what God has for us to do. So when we get back, we'll have more show for you. (laughs) Stay right there.
6: I had a conversation with my daughter about making mistakes and not getting this Christian walk right. I had to explain to her that none of us are perfect, but we are all striving for perfection. Then I was listening to a song by 10th Avenue North called You Are More. The song really explained what I shared with her and reminded me that the enemy would like nothing more than to use the mistakes and things you've gotten wrong against you. But because of Christ, you are more than your mistakes. You are more and bigger than your fears. You are so much more than the choices you've made. And God's love for you never wanes. It never decreases. It never ceases to exist. Today, no matter what you've done or how bad you think it is, repent and rest in the forgiveness and love of the Father. Extend to yourself the same passion and grace that the Father extends with a heart for the urban family. I'm today's urban woman, Toni Johnson. Connect with us at urbanfamilytalk.com. Equipped
7: with Chris Brooks. This program is an apologetic endeavor. What I want to do is really train you in the art and science of defending and commending your Christian faith to people who maybe they've been hurt by the church. Maybe they don't believe like you believe. And you're saying to yourself, how do I have an effective conversation with them? Well, we're looking for an evangelistic edge, if you will, that will allow us to more effectively, more contextualize the gospel so that we can reach men and women for Christ. Quite often, the on-ramp, if you will, is looking at culture and taking advantage of the conversations that folks are already having and saying, how can I leverage this to get people to talk about Jesus? This show becomes kind of massively significant to you if your desire is to reach people for Christ. Get Equipped with Chris Brooks. Join me Monday through Friday at noon central time on Urban Family Talk.
3: I'm Chad Pergrim with the Speaker's Lobby. The confirmation hearing for Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh got off to a bumpy start like none other. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley could barely finish his first sentence before Democrats started chirping about new documents tied to Kavanaugh and not having enough time to read them. Democratic California Senator Kamala Harris and New Jersey Democrat Cory Booker prodded Grassley. Democratic Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal moved to adjourn. Then protesters started, and all U.S. Capitol Police arrested 70 people for interrupting the hearing and heckling. All of these gymnastics pushed back the meat of the hearing by an hour and 17 minutes before Grassley finally delivered his opening statement. Despite the machinations, Kavanaugh got a boost. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey announced he taps former GOP Senate whip and Arizona Senator John Kyle to succeed the late Arizona Republican Senator John McCain. As a result, Republicans will soon hold a 51-49 advantage in the Senate. With the Speaker's lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News.
0: This is Stacy on the right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
2: Okay, welcome back to the show. Um, I I just think it was such a pleasure to have Dr. Jeffress on the show today um, to talk about his book. Sounds like a fantastic read. And I have been, I'll go ahead and come clean. I had had, so so last year was a tough road for me um, getting books read. I was just, I would start a book and then I would just struggle, you know, chapter after chapter and I don't know what was going on. And so I, I, I did, I did pray about it. I was like, Lord, I need to, I need to get this content And I have really seen a a bit of an opening up in that area where I've come around the bend and I've been able to get a couple of books read over the past month. I I think I've, I've finished four books. And so one of the things that I encourage you to do is it's probably seems like, especially if you're new and you've only been listening to the show for a short period of time, you might think, wow, she interviews a lot of authors. Wow. Do you read all of the books? Short answer is no. I don't read every single book. But there are certain books, especially when I'm provided a review copy, I try to get those read. And I also will work very hard to read ones that are by authors that I know and have already read or uh, people of interest that I've been looking forward to their book coming out. And in this case, um, I actually, I made a note. It's on my list, A Place Called Home. That's on my list to read, but I've never gotten around to purchasing and reading it. But this one... I'm actually, I've already put my little click in on uh, Amazon to get it delivered here so I can read it. And then I am going to, you know, play, play my game where I put the book in a place where other people can see it and see if anyone snatches it up and reads it. And then I'm going to go to my plan B. Um, so I'm excited about, about the opportunity to read Choosing the Extraordinary Life. Uh, that was a fantastic interview. Um, it's call-in time into the first hour, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. You can see the call lines are, there we go, right there. Um, if you're watching on the live stream and if you're calling in terrestrial radio, I'll give it to you one more time. It's 866-963-2037. I would ask that if you're calling in and, and especially if you're disagreeing about something, we could talk about anything, Kavanaugh hearings, uh, the book, um, any any breaking news, um, the story we are going to touch on in hour 2 which is about Jeffrey Owens he played Elvin on the Cosby show he got mocked for working at Trader Joe's and this has totally backfired on the people who made fun of him and turned into a fantastic opportunity for him to comment on the value of work which follows through with our first uh, with our first guest and so um we'll be talking about that in hour 2 if you want to call in about it now you're welcome to do so we have a little bit of audio from him on with Robin Roberts on the Today Show. Um, so I, I thought it was fascinating to, uh, to see some of the kind of interesting studies that are coming out that are kind of being suppressed because they don't flow along with liberal orthodoxy. And one of those studies, I mean, I, honestly, this is something that all parents should be aware of, but it's not going to get mainstream media coverage because it goes against what is in vogue right now. Which is hysteria over trying to, you know, give every kid an opportunity to be a transgender. So you've got this explosive Ivy League study that was suppressed because it found that transgender kids can be a social contagion. Now, first things first, you might be thinking, "Oh, you know, that's um, that's hysteria, that's fear mongering." No, and if you have kids, if you have children, you know how a toy can become uh, a contagion. Have you ever, do do you not remember the Tickle Me Elmo? Do you not remember how parents, including me and my husband, we were on eBay bidding for the Tickle Me Elmo because it had sold out at the Toys R Us. And it's like that with toys. It's like that with games. Um, And so as we see that activity with those types of things, we can see where it could be that way with almost anything having to do with kids. And this transgender thing is no different. I didn't commission the study. I didn't take part in it. I get no profit from talking to you about it. So this isn't something that I want to be the truth. It just happens to be the truth. Rapid onset gender dysphoria may be a social contagion linked with having friends who identify as LGBT an identity politics, culture, and an increase in internet use where you can go viral for dressing up as someone else. Cosplay is one example of that, but that has to do with you know, movies and, and comic book culture where LGBT has to do with a lifestyle decision that it's it's very detrimental to children because what's happening is most of these educators, most people who are in the childhood arena are saying, if your child is transgender, you need to immediately start them on hormone therapy to stop them from developing the offending parts. Well if they do that and then come to their senses, once You're through puberty. There's no opportunity to develop those parts. This is child abuse. So you've got what they found, and this is at thefederalist.com. I'll put the link up. Rapid onset gender dysphoria among teens and young adults may be a social contagion linked with having friends who identify as LGBT. The identity politics, peer culture, and third factor, an increase in internet use. This study was actually conducted by a Brown University professor, hardly a, you know, conservative uh, bastion of education. The study was quickly yanked from Brown's news releases after a transgender activist feeding frenzy. And the journal it was published in is reconsidering the publication. There is a parent and researcher driven petition to stand behind the publication of the first study to look in detail at rapid onset gender dysphoria. So this isn't where the child is basically saying from, you know, three or four years old, I'm a boy or I want to wear boy clothes or what have you. This is where your normal teenager has never exhibited any kind of desire or preference for being of another gender, has never expressed any problem with their gender or any idea that they might be in the wrong body. And then after having friends and exposure on social media, they suddenly are, everything is transgender, everything, I, I got to switch myself, this is wrong, I'm in the wrong body. So there's a graph in the, in the study, and it says there's been a rapid recent growth in transgender treatment centers, indicating a similar phenomenon inside of the United States, The parental reports in this study offer important and much needed preliminary information about a cohort of adolescents, mostly girls, who with no prior history of dysphoria are requesting irreversible medical interventions. Including the potential to impair fertility and future sexual function. In any other group of children, these grave consequences would be seen as human rights violations unless there was significant and overwhelming evidence that these procedures would be beneficial in the long term. And in fact, the, the, the evidence points to it being just the opposite. It's not beneficial. Despite these facts on the ground, Brown issued a statement Tuesday effectively apologizing for publici- publishing their own professor's research because, quote, Brown community members expressed concerns of, uh, that the conclusions of the study could be used to discredit efforts to support transgender youth and invalidate the perspectives of members of the transgender community. So in other words, a study that shows that rapid onset gender dysphoria, which would create more transgendered people, which is the creation of more people who are suffering from a mental illness, that information has to be suppressed because people who already suffer from the mental illness might get offended. That's the kind of crazy town that's going on at our universities here stateside. The spirit of free inquiry and scholarly debate is central to academic excellence According to Bess Marcus, the dean of Brown School of Public Health, at the same time, we believe firmly that it is also incumbent on public health researchers to listen to multiple perspectives and to recognize and articulate the limitations of their work. Which brings me to the question, how can you recognize and articulate the limitations of your work if you're not permitted to present your research in a publication for other people to peruse and question you? How can these people defend their work or any of that if the Brown University is planning on eliminating it from availability? So the writer here at The Federalist asks a question. I wonder if she would worry about invalidating the perspectives of members of the alternative health community after a Brown researcher published a study indicating a vaccine is effective and anti-vaxxers went crazy about it on Twitter doubtful. That just demonstrates the utter lunacy of what's going on here. The reason trans activists went nuts is that the study reinforces what plenty of parents, public health experts, and doctors have been saying. Transgenderism looks a lot like a dangerous fad. It's telling that the response was to demand to suppress the results. It's also telling that Brown chose to prioritize the unreasonable demands of a tiny minority above the potential well-being of children and the process of scientific inquiry. The study is authored by Lisa Littman, a behavior and social sciences professor at Brown, who is also an OBGYN, whose publications are mainly in reproductive health and abortion. The phenomenon that caused her to conduct the study to learn more is that parents have described in their in, when they go to the doctor, Clusters of gender dysphoria outbreaks occurring in pre-existing friend groups with multiple or even all members of a friend group becoming gender dysphoric and transgender identified in a pattern that seemed statistically unlikely based upon research, previous research. Parents describe a process of immersion in social media, binge watching YouTube transition videos, excessive use of Tumblr, immediately preceding their child's becoming gender dysphoric. These descriptions are atypical for the presentation of gender dysphoria, which has been described in the research literature. Littman recruited for the study by posting on the transgender critical websites, fourth wave now transgender trend and youth trans critical professionals seeking parents of adolescents who had quickly come out as transgender. She recruited 256 parents of children aged 11 to 27. They filled out a 90 question survey that took about 30 to 60 minutes to complete. 80% of their transgender-identifying children were female, and on average, the kids came out at 15. While the author and any social scientist will tell you that the study design has many flaws, self-selection and self-reporting among them, it is comparable in quality to studies that LGBT activists amplify when those studies serve their narratives. Now, this is super important. It is not okay for transgender activists to hold back Vital, critical information from parents who would want to understand that their child is in a friend group and engaging in activity that could lead in them basically misidentifying themselves and coming out as a quote unquote transgender because it's a fad. At 15 years old with puberty still in full swing, if those children are treated with hormones, it could absolutely cut off the completion of their development into functioning adults, impairing their ability to have children and have families later, and ultimately trapping them in a place where they can never actually realize full female adulthood or full male adulthood. And the reason I say that is because we saw, uh, um, it was like a little documentary clip. It's a victory story, really, of a couple of girls who were best friends and then they decided that they were lesbians and they kept dating through high school. And one of the girls, her parents said, we're not going to help you alter yourself. We think this is a a mistake. We're not going to help you. The other girl, her parents said, we, you know, we believe in you. We uh, accept your decisions. And they gave her the hormone therapy. Well, the therapy that they gave her caused her voice to lower and it, cut off her development so that she never developed the female attributes you know the exterior female attributes well later they had a pastor come through their tiny town this is in I think Norway this story comes out of and the pastor comes through and he's specifically talking about gender dysphoria and how it's alive from the pit of hell and how you could be rescued from it and so they they listen to him they repent these two best friends and she said it was like overnight, she woke up the next morning and realized, I have an improper relationship with my best friend. I'm treating her like she's my girlfriend when really she's my friend. And so they they came out of that. But the problem was the girl who hadn't had any treatments, she's already a girl and still developing. But the other young lady had been taking the male hormones and her voice had lowered. And so she stopped taking them. And two years afterwards, and they're sharing their, their, you know, kind of victory testimonial, she still has the voice of a teenage boy. And she said the doctors have told her that she'll always have that voice. And she'll always have the kind of, it's a much stronger jawline that she was developing, a slight Adam's apple. And just she, she has a lot more muscle mass than a girl would have at, at, you know, in the teenage years. And she said she's willing to live with it because she made the decision but she wanted to be sure to share with other people not to make this choice during puberty to take hormones when you really, you, you, you're not old enough or smart enough to make the decision for yourself. And so that is a cautionary tale that also should be shared because parents are out there being told by educators and nurses and doctors that if your child says they're in the wrong body, you have to immediately give them hormones so, they, so that they don't develop these offending body parts. When the child could easily grow out of it the same way kids grow out of allergies to eggs and milk, that Brown would allow this, um, the suppression of information that's vital to parents is absolutely crazy. But I just shared it with you. I put the link online. I need you to share it. Parents need to know this. That's hour one. We'll be back with hour two after these important news messages from One News Now and FoxNews.com. Stay right there.